All right, and we're still a long way from being ready. So, thank you. So we'll we'll start with some stuff that I can do. Off the, it was actually the first slide on here. All right, so we're talking about Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew, written by Matthew. Uh, so the question, the thing we'll start with first is. The first thing Matthew says in Matthew 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Why do we call him Jesus? What's his real name? That's right. Jesus is not his real name, by the way. As close, he was named by his mother, Yeshua, uh, which means deliverance. Very, very, very common name in the first century. It goes all the way back to who's Moses' right-hand man? Yeshua. Uh, so it really, you see that going back to that, like, like we said, a lot of the theme of the book of Matthew is Jesus is the new Moses. Or he's the completion of Moses. Or the second Moses. And so you're, you're going all the way back. So she names him Yeshua, which means deliverance. Uh, so the question is, how does it go from Yeshua to Jesus? Uh, and a lot of our Bibles come from oh, uh, a lot of our a lot of our Bibles obviously came from Matthew was probably originally written in a version of it was probably written in Aramaic or Hebrew. When he wrote the book as we know it, he wrote it in Greek. Uh, the church then in the four, five, six, seven, eight hundreds translated everything to Latin. Uh, you come along and our our English Bible all starts with the KJV, the official Bible of religion, right? The King James Version. Which is what Jesus spoke, right? <laughs> no. uh, and so, what happens is, I mean, if I can get this to actually pull up, uh, you have they start transliterating his name across languages. So his name starts in. It's not spelled Yeshua. We would spell it that, Yeshua. But that's actually English, which is, comes from Latin. And I can't write the Hebrew. But it is pronounced Yeshua. So when Matthew goes to write, and Mark goes to write his name in Greek, they write a name that is very phonetically similar to that so people know who they're talking about. And we'll get the PowerPoint up, which actually makes it much easier. Where is that, by the way? Where? <laughs> that is Iceland. I've not been there. Rebecca was there, sent me the picture. <laughs> I do want to go there one day, but uh, she actually, uh, that's uh, Grusenfalls, something, I think it stands for Big Falls in, in Icelandic. Uh, there we go. Alright, so I, let's go, we'll start back, we'll start the class like we always started. Uh, everyone stand for us. So like, 
If you were Jewish, this is exactly how you would start your day and how you would end your day. You would start it with the Shema. And if you were Pharisee, you would throw a third one in the middle just in case you missed the first or the second. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Have a seat. So the name of Jesus, Jesus when he was growing up would have been Yeshua ben Yosef. Ye- Yeshua the son, ben, the son of Yosef, which is Joseph. The reason for the Y's is that there's no J sound in Hebrew. So everything's actually a Y sound. When they go to transliterate, Yeshua in Hebrew means deliverance. So we'll go backwards. So it starts with Yeshua. The closest approximate in Greek is I-E-S-U-S. That sounds like Yeshua. It doesn't mean it. They just transliterated. It's not like it does not have a meaning. They just transliterated his name into Greek. So it sounded the same. And then you've got the Latins come along. And for all you guys who took Latin in high school, right, there is no J in Latin, correct? The I, the I is both an I and a J. So the, in Latin, pronounced Jesus. It's a Y sound again. All right? So when do we get Jesus? Our friend's King James Version comes along. About 500 years ago, in English, the I gets split into, two, into a vowel and a consonant so that people would know how to say it. So they had a choice. They could either leave it Jesus, which is how it's said in Latin, or who's the king at the time of the King James Version? Anybody. James, that's what's named that. So if the king's last name, first name starts with a J, and you're interpreting the Lord, and he directly allows the king to rule, what first syllable do you use? J. So that's, in English it becomes Jesus. So that, that, that's how, it's only in the last 400 years that it's got the hard J on it. So you'll, so you'll see this sometimes when people uh, will, will write and stuff. But, so his name's only Jesus in the last 400 years. He was born Yeshua. And then uh, you'll see people say his name is Jesus Christ. Christ is not his name. You'll see in the book of Matthew, it's his title. We're starting from the back again. Mishak, which means anointed one, uh, translated in English as Messiah. So then they, the Greeks have a word for anointed one, Christos, because their kings were anointed. So they knew, so it was easy when they wrote the book to say, what is it in Greek? It's Christos. So his name became in Greek, Jesus Christos. The Latin Christus. And then in English, they literally just transliterated that, took the U.S. off and made it Christ. So, his, so that's when you see Christ in English. It's all the way from the Hebrew, meaning anointed one. It's a title. So when Matthew says Jesus, it should be the Christ in English because it's a title. What he is saying is Yeshua, the deliverer, the anointed one which to the Jews has tons of overlay on it. When they hear that, they know 
That is the guy who's come to deliver us from all this 2,000 years of history. <coughs> so that's what he starts with. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Eastern versus Greek writing styles. Matthew is an Eastern. He is not Greek. Uh, I'll give you an example. Wayne, count to ten for me. In English. In English. Yes. Yes. In English. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. All right. I, you're Greek. Ask me to count. Ask me to count in ten. To ten. Count, count to ten in Greek. One, three, five, seven, nine, ten. Those are both. Those are both according. If you're Greek, which we are, our logic style is Greek. Wayne was accurate and he was exact. If you looked at me as a Greek, you'd say, you are not accurate. If you looked at, if I was an Eastern writer, they'd say, yes, you're accurate. Because I started with one, I got to ten. That's what they're concerned about. They have very different, what we call logic styles. So when we start reading some of this, you have to understand some of the underpinnings of how they write. Uh, so it, to us, accurate and exact are synonyms. To an Eastern writing style, they are not synonyms. You can be accurate without being exact. To us, you can't do that. You go, if you're not accurate, if you're not exact, you're not accurate. We'll get into that into, into the genealogy today. Uh, Easterns, Greek, Greco-Roman, we're very black-white. It's either true or false. In Eastern writing, you can have mostly true, which makes it true. And uh, a great example is, one of the guys I was reading on this was a, a missionary in Indonesia. And according to their uh, bylaws of the society he was at, the board of directors was male. He goes to the first board of directors meeting, there are ten men and two women at it. And so he pulls the guy aside and goes, I thought your board of, your board of, your, 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 all your literature says it's all, it's all male. It, it's all men. He goes, yes. He goes, well, are there women here? He goes, well, yes. He goes, is that your board of directors? He goes, yes. He says, so, so a Westerner, he was very bothered by the fact that it says it was all male, but it was not. To a guy who's Indonesian, which is have an Eastern philosophy, they go, yeah, it's mostly men, so it's, it's men. So they, they're very comfortable in the gray. Uh, we're not uh, necessarily all that comfortable in the gray. We like more black and white. So you have to keep that in mind as you're going through. Uh, chronological or topical? We write everything chronologically. Eastern writing tends to be topical. And so they'll move stuff around. Again, it gets into that exact versus accurate. They'll move some stuff around to get it topically correct that's not chronologically correct. And that really bothers us. It does not bother the Eastern guys at all. And then you have logical progression versus sandwich. To explain that, this is how we are all taught to write, right? Intro, point A, point B, point C, conclusion. That's how a Greco-Roman writes. That's how, that's how our education system writes. How do the Easterns write? This is the most common way. Point A, point B, conclusion, point B prime, point A prime. So if you read an Eastern writing, which a lot of the proverb and the parables are in Eastern philosophy. If you read it like a Westerner, sometimes you draw the wrong conclusion. And we'll, we'll point that out as we go along to some of this. All right. Genealogy. All right, to, to a Westerner, 
Why in the world are we starting with genealogy? I thought this was the story of Jesus, or Yeshua, if we want. Uh, to the Jews, remember this book's written to the Jews, the single most important thing is your bloodline. It's about purity, because you can, the farther back you can trace it, it shows your purity. If you want to be a priest, you have to go back to Levi. If you want to be high priest, you have to go back to Aaron. Uh, it shows a connectedness from the beginning. Father, remember, Jews consider that Father Abraham is everything. And then to today. And also shows you God's faithfulness because they can trace their story through history. So it's totally appropriate for Matthew writing to the Jews to start with Jesus' genealogy. And he starts with Abraham and he runs through David. And this is where people go nuts when they start reading this. All right. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Like I said, his name and his title. Uh, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, the two most important guys in Jewish history. David, Abraham. So Jesus is going to be descendants of both. Very important to the Jews because the Messiah is pro promised to be both of these things. So Matthew is writing a proof to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And he starts the book with, this is genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. I mean, that is such a, to a Jewish audience, such a waving the huge red flag right there. You're, you're saying that he is the deliverer who is promised through the entire Old Testament. And so, you know, that, that's like saying this is, this, is the best, this is the best movie, this is the best house you've ever seen. You know, that's a big promise. You've got to live up to it. The rest of the book has to live up to that promise right there. Uh, and then you go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Interesting thing. Uh, we all know that Jacob is the right, younger of the twins. Uh, inheritance always runs to the older twin, especially to the older son, especially in Judaism. Jacob is the younger. Very next generation. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother is Tamar. Who's the older brother? Zerah. So twice in two generations it goes to the younger brother. Again, these are huge red flags to the Jews. They would recognize this immediately. And other, the Jews would also have memorized all this, a lot of this. So this is kind of old hat to them as we're coming along with here. And so you run down uh, all the way to King David. Uh, another, from David all the way down to uh, Josiah, the father of Jeconah, at the time of the exile to Babylon. And then there are a bunch of names. These we have very little data on because once they go to Babylon, things get really confused and we lose a lot of the genealogy. And so there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now let's get into the, ex the accurate versus the exact. Is there exactly 14 generations in all that? Because people will say this proves the Bible is not true. The answer is no there's not. To an Eastern, yes there is. To a Westerner, us, no there's not. The reason is this word that's translated father does not mean father, it means ancestor of. So to a Jewish writer, an Eastern, they're perfectly comfortable skipping generations. The reason is they want to make a point with this genealogy. 
There are 14 generations. There are two theories on what he's doing. Uh, Hebrew has no numbers. The numbers in Hebrew are represented by letters. There's also no vowels in Hebrew. There's only consonants. So the word David, if you drop the A and the I, the DVD, D is the number for five, V is the number for four. So some people say that's 14. So if he's the descendant of David, you want to make it 14 generations. That's why it goes 14, 14, 14. That's one theory. Some other guy, there's plus minus on that. I like this other theory better because it, it rolls much more with Jewish thought of the day. Don't think of it as 14. Think of it as six sevens. Seven is a far more important number to the Jews. So Jesus is the start of the seventh generation of seven. So to Jews, again, who are always looking for numbers like seven and twelve, that is a, once again, raising a huge red flag that Jesus is the Messiah because he's the seventh seven. If seven is perfection, Jesus is the seventh seven. So that's one thought of why Matthew wrote the genealogies the way he did. Now let's look at a couple things. So we start with Abraham. Everything in Jewish history goes back to Abraham. If you don't go back to Abraham, you're not a Jew. Because uh, we'll get to in the end, the end of the story, Jesus actually tells the people, you guys say you're, you're sons of Abraham. He goes, so what? I can take these rocks and make these sons of Abraham, which we'll find out is a huge insult at the time. Uh, that's like calling a Bama fan an Auburn, a war eagle to a Bama fan, right? Uh, so we start with Abraham. And as soon as he wrote this, every Jewish person would flash back to this, Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. That's the, the first Abrahamic promise that the Messiah would come through him. And then the next big name is obviously the father, the first 14, King David. You get into 2 Samuel. He does the same thing to him. I will raise your offspring up to succeed you. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So to them, the Messiah, has, you have to fill, fulfill both those criteria. You've got to be a son of Abraham, and you've got to be a son of David. And according to this, he does. All right. And here's where exact and accurate go away. Uh, Perez lived about 1900 BC. One, two, three, four generations. Nashon, we know, lives in 1500 BC. So either the guy's lived a really long time or he's skipping generations. Like I said, to an Easterner, skipping generations is nothing because he wants to fit the narrative to the number that he wants, which in this case is 14 or sevens. Uh, and then again, uh, 1,500 to 1,000, you have a 500 year, uh, he really is just, he's just trying to get some interesting people in here for other reasons. So uh, and then you get in here, I didn't even write all the kings he skips. He skips kings like crazy. And he picks some kings that nobody can understand why he picks because they're not great kings. And he skips some really good kings that you'd expect to be in the list. 
Remember, because this list, everybody knew their ancestors if you were Jewish. You could repeat who your ancestors were because that determines where you sat socially inside of Judaism, inside the Hebrews. Who was, who was your grandfather? Who was your great-grandfather? Who did you, you come from? So everybody knew their genealogy. So he's rolling Jesus' genealogy down. Did the The women all knew their genealogy, but that had to do more with when, when you marry in, you marry into the father's side of the genealogy. And I would say, you, you, perfect question. He, bring, he mentions four women in this genealogy who A, in a Jewish genealogy, would not exist. You're only going to talk about the men. If you talked about a woman, you would have talked about Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah, what, you know, the, the big women in the history. You, wouldn't pull these, you definitely wouldn't pull these four women out. Uh, you have Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Ruth, and you have Uriah's wife. Is that why Judah was listed in this rather than the firstborn son? Yes, okay. because this is, this is the direct, we're taking the direct right back to Abraham. And like I said, Judah is the younger of the two twins and Perez is the younger of the two twins. So the way normal inheritance would have run it had gone through the older of the two twice and so you see God in his providence changes stuff and uh, then the famous Uriah's wife who we're going to get into who that is in just a second uh, let's talk about Tamar a little bit Tamar, Genesis, she gets a whole chapter to herself uh, Genesis 38 uh, this is a uh, basically she Judah has two sons, Er has three sons, Er and Onan. Uh, er marries uh, Tamar, uh, and more, most importantly, Tamar is not a Jew. Everyone forgets that. Tamar is not a Jew because if she was a Jew, then Judah's marrying his sister. Because at this point, there's only 12 sons of Judah. So they're marrying non Jews. Tamar's not a Jew. Uh, er was not a good person, so the Lord puts him to death. All right? So Judah said to Onan, go sleep with your brother's wife, uh, raise up offspring. Uh, he would not be his, so he did not do his job. The Lord puts him to death as well. Third son comes along. Uh, Judah goes, hey, this is not good. I'm 0 for 2. Two sons marry this girl, two sons die. Uh, there's a younger brother, and it, who's obviously a ton younger, because they don't get married right away. And so uh, he does not marry her to him. And then basically, I skipped some in the middle of the Genesis 38. She keeps coming back to him and says, hey, I need, I need a spouse because I need children for my inheritance. Judah, for well, we won't even get into the whole uh, cult prostituteism. So anyways, he thinks she's a prostitute. He goes into her. Uh, she disguises herself. He gets her pregnant. Uh, and uh, lots of stories. Trust me, the Jews know this story really, really well. When you say Tamar, they all know this story. Because out of Tamar, uh, he, he finds out she's pregnant. He goes, let's burn her to death because she's sleeping outside the family. She whips out his seal, says, hey, this is the, this is the father of the babies. And he goes, oh, wait a minute, let's talk about this. Uh, he realizes whose they are. Uh, and so she has twin boys, again, 
Uh, Zara is born, sticks his hand out, comes back, Perez is born first, so Zara is actually the firstborn. Perez is in the line of Jesus. Uh, the thing, this is called Leverite marriage. Uh, basically because all inheritance comes through children. If you die, if your brother dies without kids, there's no one to inherit. So you're allowed to marry your brother's wife to have children. Uh, basically says if you don't do it, uh, this man's line shall be known to Israel as a family of the unsandaled. That means you, you have to give your shoes up if you don't do what God says to do in this. So everyone walks around and says, you have no sandals on, you know you're not obeying. So that's, all the Jews would immediately know Leverite marriage because that was a very big issue because all property went through bloodlines. Uh, Rahab, Joshua 2. Uh, is Ra the, the question you'll see all the time in Christian literature, is Rahab a prostitute? <laughs> the, you'll see, no, 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 she was an innkeeper. <laughs> she was both. In those days, single women, uh, if you brought strangers into your house, she was not the uh, Motel 6 of Jericho. Uh, she probably really was uh, a prostitute as well as an innkeeper. But she, all the Jews know the story because she backs the spies, this is in Jericho, as they're coming in. Jer uh, Joshua's leading the people in. And then they, uh, they basically, her entire family is saved. And again, she is a non, now we're talking 400 years later when there's lots of Jews. She is a non-Jew because she's living in Jericho. And God incorporates her into the line of Jesus, into the line, and for the Jews, into the line of David. She's one of David's great-great-great-grandmothers. Uh, and she's a non-Jew. Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a non-Jew. Uh, and she's so important, she gets her own book. Uh, and then talks about how we're incorporating this Moabite. And by the way, if you look in the Bible, Moabites are not people that the Jews get along with at all. Uh, the Jews tried to kill most of them as they went through. Some of them survived in Moab, and the Moab, for the rest of their history, tried to kill most of the Jews. They were not friends. She's a Moabite. She becomes in the line of David, in the line of Jesus. So. Both those are very important. So you have three non-Jewish women in the line of Jesus who are all have somewhat questionable uh, morality. You have Tamar dressing as a prostitute, you have Rahab who was a prostitute, and then you have Ruth. Uh, this is another one you see tons of writing on. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you're my guardian redeemer. And then he says, hey, spend the night with me, but uh, get up before anyone can recognize you. No one must know a woman came to the threshing floor. There, so there's lots of question on whether or not she was supposed to be there, what exactly was going on. Uh, but we know that he, uh, Boaz redeems her, marries her, and incorporates her into the line of David and the line of Jesus eventually. Uh, so that third non-Jewish woman. So to the Jews, uh, Matthew is waving, again, 
to them red flags because the Jews are all about being Jewish. I am the most Jewish of Jews. The fact that he is actually intentionally incorporating three non-Jewish women who have some questionable history into his alignment, he's setting up an argument that he's going to do later in the book of Matthew. But the Jews would immediately recognize these women for what they are, which are non-Jews that, for whatever reason, God grafted into the, to the uh, family tree before David. Uh, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Uh, same thing. Uh, they are, everybody knows this story because you know that's Solomon, who is the wisest of all the Jewish kings. All the moms wanted their children to be Solomon. If you're going to be smart, you know. If you're going to be brave, be David. If you're going to be smart, be Solomon. Uh, you know, he write, he writes several books of the Bible in the Old Testament. They they really liked him. Uh, doesn't even call her Bathsheba, just calls Uriah's wife. Why is he making a point? Uriah was not a Jew. Fourth, possibly non-Jew. There's a question whether or not she's Jewish that marries a non-Jew, in which case in Middle Eastern, uh, that would make her non-Jewish because you became what your husband's tribe was. So what he's the point he's making here is that she's also considered a non-Jew. Uh, that's why he's calling her Uriah's wife. He's saying she was in the, the people and she ste intentionally stepped out by marrying a non-Jew. Uh, and then he you know, brings the story up of, they'd all immediately jump to 2 Samuel, 2nd book of Samuel, the story of, uh, there, there's so much in this of, uh, you know, you'll, you'll read everything from David basically abducted her and raped her to she was a, basically a prostitute trying to sleep her way to the top. Uh, the truth is probably somewhere in between, but the bottom line is, again, uh, fourth woman in his, that he brings out in the genealogy that definitely were, was outside the morality of the time uh, in, in, was sexual morality because Either David got her pregnant and then they got married, or she's taking a bath on the top of the house because she lives right next door to the king and she knows she's, he's going to be watching. Uh, you know, there's a, this story has so many different layers on it of who was who was doing what. You know, like like reality, it's probably a little of both. They both David probably. David should have been out leading the army. He was home. Uh, Bathsheba definitely should not have been taking a bath on top of her house in the night with light, lamps all around since she knew that she lived right next to the king. And she knew the king's window overlooked her thing. Because it's like, uh, you know, it's everything revolved around the king in those days. The closer you live to the king's house, the higher your, higher your power. The fact that she was very next door tells you everything you need to know about where Uriah stood in the power structure of the time. So uh, Bathsheba was definitely not innocent in this. David was not innocent. They're, you know, like I said, everything else, I think they're both uh, have some issues, but he's, again, fourth semi, in her case, uh, married non-Jewish woman who has who's engaged in sexual sin in his genealogy. So why are the women included? Uh, number one, Gentile inclusions. 
He's try, he is setting up the story that, that the Messiah is not only for the Jews, but he's going to be for the whole world. That's the hardest thing for the Jews right there. The Jews can understand when the Messiah comes, he's for them. What the Jews have problems with is understanding he's also for the Gentiles. And they're going to be equal. In, in the Jewish thought of the day, when the Messiah came, he was going to establish a kingdom that ruled the entire world from Jerusalem. And the Jews are going to be on top. Everybody else is down here. Matthew is starting the story that yes, he's coming. Yes, he's the Messiah. He's not going to rule like you think he's going to rule. And everyone's going to be equal. We're all going to be in the kingdom together. That's what Matthew's... And so he's rolling that out in this very, the very first genealogy that all the Jews would recognize when they read this. That these four women are all non-Jewish. They're all involved in uh, sin and uh, of a sexual nature and he's starting to start the story of why they're normal. All four show God's grace that they are all in the genealogy of the greatest king of Israel which is David and then right after this this is going to lead into the birth story because what's Mary everyone think what's Mary done? They're not, she's pregnant before they get married, right? What happened to the four women in this story? They're all pregnant. They all have. They're all. Most of them are pregnant before they get, or are engaged in sexual sin. So what he's doing is setting up an argument that he's about to roll into the birth story, that there's a lot of grace here, that this is historical, and that there's a lot of. Uh, redemption that God brings in in this genealogy. All right, any, I know that's blowing through it really fast. Any questions? I think we're almost at time. How do you see Mary so different from the other women? Yes, but to the Jews, she's going to be seen exactly the same because she is pregnant before marriage and so to them remember what, what's the law of Moses say you do with a woman caught in adultery stone her to death these four women should have all been stoned to death they're not they're actually incorporated into in, in what Matthew's saying is not only were they not incorporated not stoned to death they were incorporated into the bloodline of the Messiah that's going to rescue all of Israel and all the entire world. So he is showing God's grace of saying, you know, here's what's going on. Because there were, there were a lot of, uh, I've read a lot about writings and talking about the time that, because a, lot of, because a lot of it comes down to the Immaculate Conception. A lot of people do not believe Jesus was Immaculately Conceived. That Joseph was in fact his father. And so what Matthew was setting up is uh, showing here is what happened to these women. Yes, I know you all believe that she was sleeping with Joseph or somebody else and got pregnant. And he, and he says, even if you believe that, I'm going to show you these guys were grafted into the bloodline of David, the greatest king that you guys all worship. And then he's going to go into the, explain why she was not pregnant by Joseph when he goes into the birth story. 
But he, but he's setting up his argument as he rolls through this. And so that's and that, and also why when you look in Luke, which is the other genealogy, is different than this because Luke is doing something different with his genealogy. He is he why well, he's got a different audience in mind. He, the Jews would look at this genealogy from a very Jewish standpoint, which is purity. You know, it's purity, right? So who's he throw in there? Four women who are not who are not Jewish that are in the Jewish law would be impure. And that you notice all four of them are before King David, who is the greatest king. So he, he's using their own arguments against them that, oh, you know, Mary, the mother of Joseph, mother of Jesus, Yeshua, was an impure woman. And so he's coming back into this genealogy with these four and going, wait a minute, let's, if you're going to use that argument, let, let me bring up four women from history for you. Boom, 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 boom. And oh, how, what happened to them? Oh, I'm sorry, David came through them. The guy who, at the time, the, uh, the th most of the theory from the rabbinic writings at the time are, there's, e there's two theories of what the Messiah is going to do. You have the single Messiah theory, which is that he is going to be a king like David and establish a earthly kingdom in Jerusalem and then rule and also be high priest. He's like a two-in-one. And then you have the other theory which is that there are two messiahs coming. You're going to have a David messiah and an Isaiah messiah. The David messiah is going to establish an earthly kingdom and then the Isaiah messiah is going to be the great prophet that tells us, tells us the rest of the world, God, he becomes the oracle of God. So there's two theories going on at the time of what the messiah is going to look like. And remember from history we did last week, there, are, there was a messiah minute at this time in history. Uh, when you get it in an axe, I don't know if he, he's probably not to it yet. He taught, you know, Gamaliel throws out two that occurred in the last two years before Jesus died. And then there were five that we know of between Jesus' birth and AD 10 that required the, or five that required the military to put him down. There's probably more than that. But there were five that required the, the Roman army to actually march and put down the rebellion led by Messiah. So the Jews at this period were really looking for the Messiah. That because at the time they were on the bottom. You know, for the last however many hundred years, they were ruled by somebody else. And so everything uh, in Jewish writings around this time is all messianic. They're all looking forward. When is the Messiah coming? When is the Messiah coming? It's been 400 years. There's been no prophet has written anything. We're in the silent phase. They're saying, when's the Messiah coming? When's the Messiah coming? When's the Messiah coming? And when you look at worship that's in the synagogue at the time, it's every, every they had a three-year cycle. Then you would read something from the law, the Torah, and you'd, see, you'd read something from the prophets. And they had a cycle that repeated every three years. Every one of the readings from the prophets was messianic. When is the Messiah coming? When is the Messiah coming? And so you have, so when Jesus comes and teaches, when Matthew's writing this to the, to the Jewish uh, citizens of the first century, he is saying Jesus is the Messiah that you have been looking for for 400 years, 500 years, 600 years. Jesus is that Messiah. And so the whole book is written from that viewpoint of Jesus is the Messiah. 
And then what he does in the book is that he then corrects their view of what the Messiah is really going to do. All right, any more questions or comments? We're almost out of time. Yes? So, with that in mind, we knew Jewish people were, like, they wanted the perfect genealogy and, like, perfect all of this. Is that why it's so hard for them to recognize Jesus as Jewish, just with his imperfect genealogy and just, like, what else? Jesus was not matching what they were expecting. they, because you have the Pharisees who are all about the law. And so to them, the Messiah would keep the law perfectly. To the Sadducees, the Messiah would venerate the temple perfectly. He would keep every sacrifice. He would elevate the temple. To the uh, Zealots, Jesus would, the Messiah would be the man who put them on top again. That made them independent. They all had their own view of what the Messiah was going to be. Jesus, when he comes, is not that Messiah. And so this is Matthew starting to start the argument in this book that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that you were expecting. And that and that's what you see going in, in his five teachings, series of teachings, that's what he does. He says, he is the Messiah, because here's what the Old Testament says, and here's what Jesus does. Here's what the Old Testament says, here's what Jesus does. Here's what the Old Testament says, here's what Jesus does. Here's what Jesus teaches. And all these are going back to, this is what the real Messiah is going to do, not the Messiah that you want. And so so his genealogy starts that argument, which is that he's not the person they were expecting, but he's the person that God said he was going to send. All right. I think next week is Rebecca or Stephen. I don't know which. I have to look at my calendar. So next week will be the birth story and the second chapter. So the end of chapter one and chapter two. Since we only have 17 weeks, we'll be stepping through this pretty quick. Like, like I said, Stephen has the uh, Beatitudes, the entire Sermon on the Mount in one week. So he's got 45 minutes to tell you everything you need to know about that. All right. See you next week.